Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number six of the Devaney Music Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Devaney. You may be wondering where I was for the last month and a half or so, and at least part of the answer is that I was actually sick with COVID, which was pretty rough, and I'm really just now starting to feel fully recovered. I was also trying to do some master's classes and transition into a new job, so I've had more than enough going on. Either way, I'm excited to be back, and you can hopefully expect to hear new episodes a little more consistently, because I have two episodes per month scheduled out for the next three months already, and I have some guests that I'm very excited about. In fact, the next episode will be with rock artist Luke Easter, who you may also recognize as the former lead singer of the heavy metal band Tourniquet. But that aside, I'm also very excited to have this next guest on, who I will introduce without further ado. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number six of the Devaney Music Podcast. I'm here today with Paul Rohrabach, who I would actually say is probably one of my favorite drummers, and uh, I'm a drummer as well for what that's worth, but he has played drums for the band Gramma Train, um, which possibly the most listeners know him for, um, but he currently has a solo project called PJ Bostic. He has also played drums for Bloodgood, Monty Montgomery, One Bad Pig, right? At least one mm-hmm. album. Um, yeah. And has worked as a drum tech for Terry Bazio, the drummer for Frank Zappa. And uh, his latest album with PJ Bostic is titled Faith of Least Resistance. So Thank you for uh, joining me, Paul. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, and uh, for those of you who can't see Paul sitting in his studio, he has a large, beautiful <laughs> drum kit with many toms and cymbals behind him. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I had a lot of thoughts before this interview, and I feel like we could go a lot of different directions. But for the sake of it, maybe we could start at the beginning. So, um what would you say really got you into music in the first place? And then maybe what was the journey from that to ending up playing with Grandma Train? Well, when I was young, I used to get uh, pieces of plywood and put nails on the wood and put rubber bands on the nails and sit in the backyard and pretend <laughs> I was playing guitar. And my grandma would always come out and, destroy it and tell me I was going to like hurt myself on these nails or something. And she'd go upset. And, and then mm-hmm. uh, I think Elton John was probably my first, my first album was yellow brick road and I'd grab a tennis racket and stand in front of the mirror. You know, I was probably, gosh, I don't know, 10 or 12 or something. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I always felt like I wanted to be an entertainer. And, and then one day uh, I was thir- 13 and I was watching a, I think it was a super tramp video and I was really intrigued by the drummer and I never wanted to be a drummer before. I always wanted to be kind of the front man, you know, and be <laughs> yeah. the star. And, but I was, I was really, it just made me really want to be a drummer. And so I remember that night in my, my bed praying and I begged God, just please make me a good drummer, you know, please. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll give my gift back to you somehow, you know, and, and then I remember asking my parents for a drum set and they got me a snare drum and they couldn't keep me off of it. I was on that thing <laughs> all day long. Just, I was just couldn't stop. And so from there, it just, 
uh, you know, one of my friends at some point recommended the band Rush. Mm-hmm. And when I was uh, 14 or 15, I listened to Rush and realized that this was the band that I had listened to when I was 12. Mm-hmm. That I'd been looking, I was, I thought it was Tom Petty. It was on it. There was a cassette that said Tom Petty, but it was actually Rush 2112. So I'd been <laughs> buying Tom Petty eight tracks. That shows you how old I am. I've okay. been buying <laughs> eight track tapes of Tom Petty for a couple of years, trying to find these songs. And, um, but then I was checking out Rush because someone said I should. And there it was. It was that band I was looking for. That's those beautiful songs from Discovery with the fountains in the background. And, and so I just, became a huge rush fan and and i feel like um rush just their music sort of took me out of reality mm-hmm. which is which is uh really what i kind of needed you know i um my my child childhood wasn't absolutely terrible but it wasn't great mm-hmm. and and um i mean there's worse ways to escape you know mm-hmm. but um i don't know if Rush influenced me to be the kind of artist I am, or if because that's how I'm wired, that's why I latched onto them. Because when I saw the documentary, I couldn't believe how much of just their worldview as far as music and integrity goes with your music. And so I couldn't believe how much of that was me. Like I felt like they were speaking for me. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, um, I didn't know that I related them on such a personal level as well as just liking their music, of course, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've listened to a couple Rush interviews and, and I'm a fan of their music as well. And um, yeah, it's always been interesting. I mean, both like Getty Lee and Neil Peart. I don't know if I've ever really heard Alex Lifeson do an interview, but, but yeah, they're very thoughtful. People mm-hmm. seem very kind. Um seem to value integrity a lot. So, so it's always inspiring when you hear a band that is like that because maybe there's so many out there that, that aren't, or they're just kind of about, about the show and about partying. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wonder, you know, when I was, when I was younger, I, of course I loved music. I couldn't stop listening to it, but you know, when you're young, being rich and famous sounds so exciting and that was definitely, you know, part of it, like, Ooh, being famous and rich would be great, you know? And, um, not that grandma train gave me fame per se, but it gave me enough to realize that, okay, I I certainly don't want this. Mm -hmm. It it, it made me, um, it it didn't make me, um, I'm I'm not really, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm a a recluse Mm -hmm. because I really do like being around people but i i think um i I think when when if if too many people want my attention at the same time like at a gig or something Mm -hmm. i think i i feel like i'm gonna let somebody down and and it makes it hard for me to just be around crowds sort of especially if if i'm supposed to be something to somebody to somebody that i i just don't really think i am sometimes you know Mm-hmm. Like if I, you know, just if you're, you know, uh, in a band or just even as a Christian in a band, I think sometimes people expect you to be a, probably a better Christian than you are. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I'm very open about 
my struggles with sin on my records. And I'm, I'm very vocal about, don't, don't look to me. If you're looking for an example of a perfect Christian, I don't know if one exists, but it's certainly not me. Um, but anyway, so I don't know that I would want the temptations of being rich, but, you know, paying the bills would certainly be nice. But what, what I'm, I guess what I'm boiling this down to is it's really come down to it. It just being about the music for me. It's just, you know, paying the bills is great. I I certainly don't want to be famous, but I just want to keep making music. I just love music so much. And Mm -hmm. it's just something that I, I don't know what else I would do with myself if I ever quit writing music. I just don't know who I would be at that point. Yeah. Well, and probably from a a creative perspective, that's the best place to be in. (laughs) Sorry, I'm doing a podcast. (laughs) Which one of your, do you have more than one kid? Yeah, uh, my wife and I have four kids. And uh, of course, the girl on the Grandma Train album cover is my first daughter from my previous relationship. Okay. And uh, But that was Coda. And I don't know if you can see his drum set back there. He's got a drum set out here too. Oh, nice. And uh, he's actually a really great drummer. He's very good. He's mm-hmm. jamming with people. And, you know, he's he's a natural. Like yeah. His dad. <laughs> okay. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um. Yeah, you, you kind of mentioned um, a little bit about maybe what it's like to be be a Christian in a band or maybe have expectations placed on you and whatnot. Um, and I know when Grandma Train started, you guys got, got signed to Forefront Records, mm-hmm. um, which was a Christian label. And obviously you guys were, were believers, but what was signing to a Christian label like something that you guys like tried to do intentionally was that kind of a part of a vision or was it just kind of these guys came and offered you a deal and you were like yeah you know like the first first thing that came up or oh boy it was so long ago I think I think we were open I think it just seemed uh probably just seemed like the the normal thing to do since I had already been involved in Christian music I was in a Christian a band called Paragon when I was in high school, even in, Mm -hmm. in the, in the eighties when, I mean, there was almost nobody, you know, and (laughs) playing drums for blood good. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I, so did you play with blood good before then before? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In fact, I met Pete through Michael blood good. So if, if I had never joined blood good, I would have, there would have been no grammar chain. So, (laughs) Um, but yeah, it just kind of seemed Right. I, I think um, I, I really don't remember if we talked about what direction to go or not. Yeah. But we we recorded a demo and I don't remember if we actually sent it out or if it just kind of got around. But someone in Nashville, uh, I don't know why I always think maybe it was Way FM. I don't know if they ever did Christian rock, but um, but they played us. And then suddenly we had all these Christian labels calling us mm-hmm. and I mean, we were signed within a year of the band even getting together and we were on on the road touring with Petra before we had been together for two years which is pretty amazing for a band to get together and that quickly have things just <laughs> scoot off you know yeah that's a pretty good first gig yeah yeah so um yeah yeah I guess it just kind of seemed like the way to go and as with everything I really I think we were all praying about it I know I was really praying about it um you know I wish I had I wish I had I wish I had known then the things that I know now and mm-hmm. just things that would have made me really appreciate what we had 
with Forefront a little more and made me appreciate the opportunity I had to change people's lives a little mm -hmm. more. Like I knew that we were changing lives, but I guess the, the importance of it, I guess you get older, you get wiser, you know, maybe, but um, certainly with, you know, the music I'm doing now, I'm just so absolutely passionate about mm -hmm. the message that I'm presenting. And I wish I was more passionate about that. Mm -hmm. And I, I was glad that we were doing that. It was a good thing, but I just wish I had taken more of an opportunity back then to, mm -hmm. to do what I'm doing now, you know? Yeah. So at the time, did you, did you kind of feel like it was a ministry opportunity or was that kind of a goal or were you got guys just playing in a rock band? Um, I know I, I had an interview with Phil Joel from the Newsboys a while ago and obviously they're a huge Christian band. Mm -hmm. So I kind of asked him what, what their ministry philosophy was. And he was like, he's like, I don't know, man, you know, I, I think you're asking something that didn't exist. You know, it's like, we were just guys in a rock band having fun. And, you know, the answer, the answer surprised me a little bit kind of because of, I guess, who, at least who they've mm -hmm. become, but, um, but it made sense too, you know, for just young guys out there playing music and stuff. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I think we were just, it's kind of like, Anybody who gets to know me is going to find out that I'm a Christian. You can't mm -hmm. get to know me without finding that out. And you can't listen to my music, even though it's, especially on my first three records, mm -hmm. even though it's not s super blatant, you can, you get, you get through the album, you're going to know that this guy is a, a Christian. And I think we were just being us and we were writing about things that were important to us which reflected our faith. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Pete was writing about some of the darker things mm -hmm. that we, we struggle with. And we all related to the things Pete was writing about. We had all felt those things and we'd all been, we'd all felt rejection in youth groups. We'd all kind of struggled with the dynamic in our relationship with Jesus. You know, what, what does that mean being a Christian and how does that manifest in our lives and how much is, how much is God uh, involved in our lives? How much of him is kind of standing off and letting things, putting things into motion and how much of our lives with Christ is him being very involved. And I think it's a little of both personally. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes there's things he's just set into motion and, and he just lets things do what they naturally do. And I think there's times, especially when we ask him, I think there's times where he's very involved in our lives and very active in our lives. Like I said, it's particularly if we're praying and if we're, if we're asking him to come in and do that and be, be active in our lives, you know? Yeah. Um, when you were touring with Petra, was Louis with them at that time? Mm -hmm. Okay. I actually just started taking online lessons with him, which is a blast. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, pl plug for Louis, Louis Weaver, drummer of Petra. If you want some great drum lessons, you can check out Louis Weaver Drum Institute. But um, well, tell him Paul from Grandma Train said hello. Okay, I, I will. Go, who? Paul who? <laughs> Grandma Train. Oh, I remember them. Yeah. <laughs> They're that lo those loud kids who played before us all those times. <laughs> um, no, but you know, I, I think that was kind of his story too, though. Like I, it sounds like he was really 
praying and seeking for those kinds of opportunities, or even I think specifically to play in Petra, you know, before he joined Petra and then at the right time, that door opened up. So, yeah. Yeah. He seems very serious about his relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Like he's, he's, um, well, him and uh, I would say most of the guys that I got to know in Petra um, seemed solid, but uh, mm-hmm. particularly Louis and um, he's very verbal and yeah, he's that guy was hardcore, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hardcore about his faith and also Mickey Mouse and dad. Jones. Oh yeah. I forgot about, <laughs> I forgot about the Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah yeah that was something I was uh going back to what we were talking about before that tangent um something I was thinking about as I was kind of listening to some of grammar train stuff this week is that you had some really uh I don't know challenging lyrics deep insightful um maybe like you said sometimes kind of darker too but um I, th- I think that in the past I had always mostly listened to your music or at least grandma trans music for, for the music itself, you know, and I hadn't paid attention to the lyrics for some reason as much, but, um, but yeah, that, that was interesting to me. And I, I don't have a lot of thoughts about that beyond that. I didn't write down any or anything, but, but yeah, I remember like listening to, I, th- I think like undivine election and stuff like that. Like, wow, these are some kind of hardcore songs and concepts and stuff you've got going on or that Pete had going on. So. Yeah. That song has been a little misunderstood. I was, we were at a hotel one time, I think we were playing a festival and the lady that was at the counter, let's see if I can get this right. It, I don't even know how it came up, but grandma train came up and she didn't know that I was in the grandma train <laughs> and she said yeah you know I, I don't know about these Christian bands or something she said this this grandma train band you know they have this song called undivine election and she thought that the song was about Jesus saying that Jesus uh like didn't have the right to be you know divine and and and, mm-hmm. and I said no 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 I said I'm in the band I said that song's about um people that are just being judgmental towards others, you know, and kind of giving themselves this sort of undivine election to judge and that kind of thing. And she goes, Oh, I'm sorry, sweetie. And I just did that to you just now, didn't I? And she put her hand on my hand. She's like, I'm so sorry, honey. I was like, that's okay. (laughs) That's great. I mean, it's interesting that that was like kind of applicable in that moment too, but yeah. What are the chances? What are the odds that she's going to say that to the drummer and grandma train, you know? (laughs) Huh. Well, that's cool. Well, well, maybe after that, she told people you guys were, were a cool band. And yeah. you know, I met she, the sweet young drummer. And yeah, <laughs> you know, they're not so bad after all. They're OK. <laughs> yep. There was one person that said that his parents called us garbage train. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we, we get all those stories. And then uh, there was someone else who said that she heard demons in our music. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Was she listening to it backwards or? I don't know. <laughs> Music is meant to listen to forwards. I don't know why people get so upset about what they hear backwards. I had a friend who took their CDs, their secular CDs and put them in the oven. because mm-hmm. You know, they were, you know, supposedly all full of evil spirits. And so she puts them in the oven and, uh-huh. and she told me, you know, I mean, you should see, you know, just the con- 
the contorted, you know, way that these <laughs> CDs looked when I pulled them out. And I was like, yeah, you put them in the oven. Like, what'd you think was going to happen? Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, they make sparks if you put them in the microwave too. So uh, don't <laughs> try that kids. The microwave you didn't hear spark- that. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you, did you grow up in Seattle? I know that's where you started as a band. Yeah, we moved to Seattle when I was two, and we kind of oh, moved okay. around Edmonds and Kingston and uh, Bremerton, Renton, mm-hmm. just kind of all around, yeah. Okay, so you were kind of in that scene. Um, so how did you guys settle kind of on, on the sound you had, kind of that grunge 90s alternative sound? Was it just part of, of being in, in that environment all the time, or was it an intentional thing? Or No, I, I, in fact... I didn't even think that we, I didn't even think that we were that sound really, I guess just everything kind of rubs off on you, you know, Mm -hmm. you are what you eat, I guess. Mm -hmm. We just, we just went down and, um, you know, Pete and I started the band and we started doing some, some writing and Dalton was living with me. I didn't think he'd be interested in playing with us. Um, He had a lot of other things going on. Um, Mm -hmm. And And is Dalton your brother? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I just asked him if he wanted to grab his bass and hang out with us. And, and oh, man, the chemistry we had was just amazing when the, the three mm-hmm. of us in this little teeny, teeny, tiny basement <laughs> could barely fit us in our gear. The ceiling was right over our heads. And uh, we just, we knew we had something, but yeah. every band does, you know, you're right. And you think, you know, <laughs> but I think, I feel like we really knew there was just this, we knew that there was some chemistry and we knew that the, the electricity in the air was pretty amazing and we just loved playing together it was not mm-hmm. a chore we we rehearsed before we got signed we were rehearsing uh th- at least three nights a week and we were gigging every weekend mm-hmm. so we were playing together four or five nights a week and so by the time we got signed and went on tour we just we just had it down okay yeah hmm. yeah well i mean you guys definitely had some natural talent I think and I mean Dalton is such an amazing bass player too uh, oh yes I, I mean listening to his bass lines he I mean he moves back and forth between you know slow grooves maybe Sabbath other stuff that's maybe even a little more groovy than that to like the complex kind of Getty Lee kind of stuff on the records and or Led Zeppelin maybe kind of and mm-hmm. yeah it's it's cool um I remember watching I think the live decennium video and just, you know, mm-hmm. all of you guys are great musicians, but you know, yeah. W- watching him and being like, wow, what an awesome bass player, but yeah. Yeah. He's, he can do a lot of things. He he's um, I'm sort of, I, I guess you'd call it a blessing or a curse. Music is really all I can do. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like God's given me something and I don't know if it's just because I'm so passionate about it. It makes me driven enough to be able to do what I do, but Dalton can do anything he can <laughs> he can um, you just say yeah. that because he's your brother and you feel that way or no? <laughs> <laughs> no he knows I feel this way he's just so talented he has a left brain and a right brain you know I'm very mm-hmm. right brain but he's just he I felt like he had choices you know and I didn't I felt like this is all, all I had to just put all my eggs in this basket mm-hmm. um, but yeah that decennium live video that you're talking about we really got lucky that night I don't know <laughs> I don't know how this happened, but we just, you know, we hadn't played together. And I mean, was it 20 years? 
or 10 years. 10 what years, was it? I think. 10 yeah. years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Don't make me, I don't want to make myself older than I have to be, <laughs> Yeah. but um, we hadn't even really seen each other. We met and decided to do it, but we just got together and rehearsed that week mm -hmm. to play. And when we played that night, that electricity we had was 80% of the time it was there. Yeah. And we did another few gigs mm -hmm. and it just wasn't the same at those gigs. They're just, mm -hmm. it just wasn't quite, but that night when we were recording, it just happened to be that we are our old selves. Yeah. Well, and maybe just some of that excitement and nervous energy, yeah. you know, from coming back after so long played into that too. Um, yeah. Obviously you, you play drums practice quite a bit though. So, mm -hmm. so you were ready and there's some, yeah, there's some really cool drum parts and all of the music too. But um, speaking of which, um, I think everyone knows, at least who knows you pretty well know, knows that Rush, you know, is a big influence of yours mm -hmm. and, and Neil Peart. So obviously your style resembles that uh, quite a lot, actually, I think. Um, and I, I noticed that even a little bit just listening to the Grandma Train records this week, because you know, I mentioned that you were kind of in that grunge sound. I think that's what people label you the most. Mm -hmm. I know when I've thought about you, I've always thought in the back of my head, are they really a grunge band though? They've got some other things going on, but yeah, I feel, feel like there were moments where I heard a little bit of proggy stuff or definitely maybe just more alternative rock and I don't know, just elements and maybe some complexity that, um, grunge bands maybe like nirvana and stuff didn't really have going on you know so i like to think that maybe we completed the seattle sound <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean allison chains doesn't sound anything like nirvana or soundgarden mm -hmm. or pearl jam mm -hmm. i mean I think about how different those bands sound yeah but but yet they're all considered you know grunge or whatever mm -hmm. and so it's funny because I, sometimes i feel like people think well in order for grandma train to be grunge and I, I think this is why we didn't think of ourselves as a grunge band i felt like that meant that we needed to sound like soundgarden or alice in chains or mm -hmm. something but but there was hints of that here and there but um you know the things that we were in the same generation the things that influenced them to write the music that they were writing mm -hmm. influenced us as well okay and when that music was taking off and and we were listening to it. It just was really natural for us to make the same evolution that musically that everyone else was kind of getting drawn into the excitement and the mm -hmm. things that were going on at the time. And um, so, yeah, I liked, I'd just like to think of grandma train as another piece to the puzzle of the Seattle scene, you know? Yeah. And I, uh, I think I heard another interview you did and you mentioned that you kind of knew the bassist from, from Soundgarden, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, he was an acquaintance in, in high school and his brother did the first grandma train video, the belief. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. Anyway, I guess the question I was getting to, because it's, it's the only fan question I got, I got it from multiple people, but people wanted to know who your influences were and, like I said, we talked about Rush and Neil Peart, but, and apparently Elton John, at Elton least John. early on. <laughs> yeah, huge vocal influence. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But but beyond that, who, who would you say were some other people who you really listened to or inspired you as a musician? 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm, the name, his name is escaping me right now. The drummer for Super Tramp is very, oh, okay. very good. Mm-hmm. He's really tasty and thought out. He's very smooth. He's mm-hmm. got um, his execution is excellent. He's just really, really good. He was one of my earlier influences, probably before Peart, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and and some of the the uh, more fusiony guys like. Dave Weckl, uh, okay. Dennis, Dennis Chambers, Vinnie Caliuta. Um, oh, and uh, gosh, one of my, um, oh, <laughs> it, I, I was, I was floored that Terry Bozzi used to compare me to him from time to time. Um, gosh, I can't remember. He's one of ah. my heroes. It'll come back to me. Steve mm-hmm. Gadd, Steve Gadd. What band oh, I love Steve, from? Steve Gadd. He's just played with a bunch of, he's okay. kind of got around, you know, um, I, I, uh, I really liked a lot of us playing with Chick Corea and, um, I loved that kind of fusiony, crazy instrumental mm-hmm. stuff where the drummer just goes nuts and you have to <laughs> listen to it a gazillion times to figure out where the time signatures are beginning and ending and mm-hmm. they're, they're playing all over the beat, you know? Yeah. He's, he's just a groove master. He's really, really good. Okay, cool. Well, how did you end up uh, getting to play for, or not play, but um, be the drum tech for Terry Bazio? He's obviously a pretty amazing musician as well. Yeah, I mean, he's my hero's hero. You know, he, Neil Peart was uh, pretty enamored with Terry Bazio. Oh, interesting. Yeah. In fact, when I was with Terry at DW for two weeks, we were working on Terry's uh, drum kit, which I mean, you think mine's big. His could eat mine <laughs> in one in one bite. Uh, the one of the, I think it was the, the A&R, A&R guy coming in and saying, yeah, Neil, Neil's going to come in. He wants to meet you, Terry. And, and I was like, I'm finally going to get to meet Neil. And <laughs> um, shortly after I quit working for Terry, I was on the road with Monty Montgomery mm-hmm. and t- Terry sent me a picture of him and Neil holding up a sign saying, Hey, Polly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's funny. So I, I just missed getting to meet Neil. Yeah. But, um, but back to your question, it was just a friend uh, who knew Terry and mm-hmm. knew me and he called me up one day and knew I was looking for some work and yeah. said, you want to work for Terry and go out on the road with him for a while. And mm-hmm. he knew I knew how to work on big drum kits and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, even though you have quite a large kit behind you, you'd probably need to add about five times the the drums i think to match his from what i was watching earlier so yeah i think his kit's gotten bigger but when i was working for him he had 36 drums uh eight bass drums and Mm -hmm. over 50 over 50 cymbals and some people that can sound really ridiculous but he he looks at his piano like a i mean his drum set like a piano Mm -hmm. and the notes are all tuned i mean his drums are all tuned to notes Mm -hmm. and his bass drums are all tuned to notes and he'll play in in ostinato with his feet and then play melodies over the top Mm -hmm. and a lot of his cymbals are stacked which means that one is you know what stack means right when they're just literally sitting on top of each other Mm -hmm. so 50 cymbals but that could mean half of that many things to hit, you know? Yeah. But um, yeah, he just saw it as a orchestral piece and he was, he was just making music by himself mm-hmm. on the kit. Yeah. That's cool. You know, it's almost like a different instrument, you know, than, mm-hmm. than say, um, you know, you, you look at like what Ian Pace from Deep Purple would play just a little like, you know, probably just two toms most of the time, two or three tom, little little drum kit. I mean, I think he's maybe used some bigger kits since maybe the early days, but um, 
obviously he's a phenomenal drummer, but he's, he's playing rhythm, you know, fantastically, but just on the, on this little kit. And obviously it's less of an orchestral thing. Um, but yeah, uh, just thinking about Terry or Neil or people like that and people who tune their drums to notes, that's, mm -hmm. that's another dynamic, you know? Yeah. I've, I've done some of that here mostly because, um, there's so many drums that if I'm, if I'm tuning and then I get down to the floor tom and I just, I've, I've got to, I've, I have to end up tuning everything back up because by the time I get to my floor tom, it's just the, the note that it would have to have was just too low for it to carry. You know, in mm -hmm. other words, it would, it would sound like the next tom up. So then I, you know, so I, I started writing down notes just so when a drum goes out, I can remember, okay, I think this one's a D and I can tune it to a D or something, you know? Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty, pretty basic, but what, one of the ways I've tuned drums and let's see, I, I think I just, I think I just have three toms right now, but um, I like to listen to the song Sunshine of Your Love by Cream. And I just try mm -hmm. to get that dun, 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 dun. If I can get that sound, I'm like, oh, it sounds good. I can, mm -hmm. I can move on with my life now, but Ginger, ba Ginger Baker is one of my favorite drummers too. So it's oh, kind nice. of a, you know, I borrowed that from him, I guess, in a way. So <laughs> I met him out in LA at a Terry Bosio gig one time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he, he was, he was really excited about this car that he got. And he, was, <laughs> he wanted to show me and he's just, he was just so excited. And we, we go out there and it was like a block down from the gig. Mm -hmm. He wanted to show me the engine and he was all excited or something. And he, either he didn't have the keys to his car or he didn't have the keys to unlock something that was holding the hood down. And mm -hmm. I remember it was, it, there was this awkward moment of him wanting to show me his car and I'm just sort of standing there looking in his car and he, and he can't really show me what he wanted to show me. <laughs> and it was just like real quiet for a second. And then we, we went back inside and it, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that was Ginger Baker's son's car, I guess. Okay. So that, that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that he was quite a character. Uh, I watched a documentary about him a while ago that was really interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. But anyway. Um, uh, what's it called? I'm, I'm interested to see. That uh, it's, it's on Netflix. I honestly can't remember the name, but. I can probably Google it. It's, it. it's, it's somewhere, but. But yeah, he, uh, I don't know, mostly I feel like half of it was just about the weird antics he would do when he was in bands and stuff like that. So, yeah. but he so was maybe, a great musician too. So, so maybe he was just uh, like trolling me, just messing with me. Yeah. I, I want to show you this car. <laughs> yeah. Because it's funny because the, the car was, it was like, it wasn't all painted the same color, like mm -hmm. the maybe the, the door was a different color and everything like it had been an accident mm -hmm. or something or the hood or something. And, and yeah, just the moment of awkwardness was a little strange. And, <laughs> and then I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure what all that was about. So now <laughs> maybe I'll go watch the documentary and it'll help me yeah. understand that moment a little better. Well, I, I feel like he and cream were pretty into psychedelic stuff too. So, mm. you know, the, if that's what the car looked like, it's probably, probably <laughs> fitting. So, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, maybe moving on to talk a little bit more about your, your new music. Um, PJ Bostic, uh, I know that there's a little bit of a story behind the, the name. You know, it's maybe not a typical band name, but but what's what's the story behind it? 
Well, I found out late in life that I'm a Bostic and mm -hmm. I loved my grandfather. We weren't close because my father and my grandfather had a falling out. But my memories when I was young, I just completely adored my grandfather. And I finally put my foot down as an adult and told my dad, like, I want to know my grandfather and how do I get a hold of him? You know? Mm -hmm. So that ended up uh, with my dad and my grandfather having some healing. Well, as temporary as it was, but um, mm -hmm. uh, so my grandfather sat us down and he said that I don't, I don't understand his story. I don't, well, I don't know his story. I, I think he may have found out later that he was a Bostic too, or at least later completed his name, but he, he wanted to pay to have us all change your name to Bostic and to mm -hmm. carry on the name. And I didn't want to because I had a name for myself and I was afraid it would interfere with my ability to get work. You know, yeah. I feel like I was starting over again, you know, mm -hmm. and I kind of regretted it. I, kind of feel like I should have done that, you know? And so when I started my solo career, I figured I'd go by my initials, Paul Joseph, PJ, mm -hmm. and then just tack on Bostic and honor my grandfather. Okay. Well, that's cool. Yeah. And um, it's kind of a one-man band, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you, you play drums, you sing, you play guitar as well, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my second record, I wanted to know what it was like to have a rhythm section. So I had uh, uh, Dan Poole on drums and uh, Renee Herrera on bass. And, and we called it the Time Machine, PJ Bostic and the Time Machine. Okay. And um, I, now I know what that's like. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I, won't, I won't ever do it again. It was good, though. I mean, I'm, I'm not slamming them. They did a great job. But yeah. I'm really a drummer at heart. I'm a yeah. drummer. And I need to be playing drums on my records. I, mm -hmm. I really missed playing drums as great as they did. I just, I just feel like I need to be the drummer on these. So, yeah. Um, were there other musicians involved in, in this new record? No, these last two, uh, I played everything on my first record. I had a couple guest musicians here and there, mm -hmm. but um, this one, I just, uh, the last one, I thought it would be the only record. I mean, the, the two uh, light me on the two records ago. Yeah. I thought that would be the only record I played everything on. I figured I would still have some guests and stuff, but um, I don't know why I just ended up doing everything again. It just seemed mm -hmm. easier sometimes to just do it than to work with schedules and finding somebody <laughs> that wants to play it just for fun, you know? Yeah. So. Well, I mean, that makes a lot of sense too, you know, thinking about trying to schedule different musicians and stuff like, I mentioned to you earlier, I've been a concert promoter before, which is always interesting because nothing ever happens according to plan and no one shows up on time. But I was kind of in a band that was pretty much exclusively for fun too. Uh, that kind of died at the beginning of the whole COVID thing. Um, mm. But yeah, it was always a challenge trying to line up practices and stuff. And yeah which yeah. I think yeah it's hard to get people to commit to practicing two or three nights a week <laughs> yeah yeah that's a lot even even twice I mean it's to, to for me to be in a band like to take a band seriously you'd have to rehearse at least twice a week really yeah. for me I would want three if not four in the beginning but to me um rehearsing once a week um 
I just don't know how much, how much you can get done once a week if you're really trying to do something, you know, and I understand people have schedules and you're busy, but it seems like if you're really committed and really serious about it, then you, you got to at least give it two or three nights a week. If mm-hmm. you want to de- develop that chemistry within the band. So when you play live, there's just something that you can't put your finger on that is there. There's this yeah. electricity in the air. That kind of stuff only comes really if you've been rehearsing a lot together. Yeah. And I'm, I'm taking lessons now and I'm trying to work on technique and stuff that I kind of overlooked for over 10 years because I was mostly self-taught, but, yeah. um, but yeah, when I was in high school, I played all the time. I would play with different people like three times a week. And I was honestly probably a better drummer than just because, mm-hmm. because I was playing so much. That's pretty much the only way I feel like mm-hmm. to, to improve as a musician. So yeah, I'm, I'm actually trying to beat my old record right now. I, uh, years ago, I, I said, okay, I want to play. Okay, my rule was I had to play at least 20 minutes a day mm-hmm. um, to, to count. And I wanted to see how many days in a row I could go without, you know, and I went like, I'd usually play more than 20. I'd usually play for a couple hours, but I had to do at least do 20. So if I was a hurry, I'd go get 20 minutes in. And I think I went 44 or 48 days and 11 days ago, I told myself, okay, you got to at least do an hour. Mm-hmm. And usually I'm, if I'm out here, I'm doing two or three hours. Yeah. And sometimes on a really good day, I'll, I'll get four in, but so I'm on day 11. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can beat my, my old record. I'm going to see if I can, of course, my goal is I want to go a year. I'd really love to go a year saying I played at least an hour a day wow. for an, an entire year, but I'm sure you know, you go camping or you're out of town or something will happen, mm-hmm. but I'm going to see how long I can go. <laughs> Maybe I'll start posting it on Facebook or something. Yeah, do it. Just bring your drum, bring a little mini kit with you everywhere. Some drum mm-hmm. pads, whatever, you know. Yeah, it can be an hour on the pad. That'll count. Okay. That's, that, yeah, that can that's do good. wonders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the main ways I practice right now, at least for the technique stuff, mostly so I don't drive everyone around insane but you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah but that's a good goal i i support that fully so all right well now uh, i feel like i have to make it to a year so give me some inspiration to mm-hmm. see if i can do that well i know like like ted kirkpatrick from tourniquet he's he recorded a whole album of of classical like drum covers and stuff like that so maybe maybe you don't need to do classical unless you want mm-hmm. to but maybe you so need to he, do like a drum album you know is he playing everything on those i've seen some of those videos i didn't know if he was playing the piano and um, stuff too or the I, I think so i know that wow, he's pretty impressive yeah i know he's a very good guitar player i've heard like on some of the tourniquet records that sometimes if he wasn't happy with it with the part someone else played he'd kind of grab the guitar and play it um that probably so. made him some friends <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yeah, he seems like uh, a very pre- precise yeah, person, I, you know. Yeah. So I get it. You know, I'm, 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 I'm told I can be hard to work with. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. um, I I do have high expectations. If you know, if someone's gonna be in a band, I just, I mean, I don't think it's a lot to ask to have people like we were talking earlier to to show up for rehearsal, you know, and mm-hmm. learn their part. And, and, you know, if, if somebody, especially if it's somebody I'm hiring or something, if I, if I know that they've been, been working hard, 
Mm -hmm. and they're missing the mark a little bit. I'm okay with that, Mm -hmm. you know, but if they're missing the mark and, and I can tell that just, they just have sort of a haphazard um, attitude about just rehearsing and practicing at home and stuff, then it'll really bother me. Yeah. You know, I'll get somebody else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's just kind of the way the music industry goes, you know, Mm -hmm. people who show up and, and try hard, and do their best are the ones who get the most gigs. So, mm-hmm. yeah. My my, I'm trying to think. My music business professor, he always said, "Show up on time and leave early." So, <laughs> you know, if you can, you know, basically show up on time, let people know you're you're there for business, and then leave as soon as you can, so you don't, you know, unnecessarily upset anyone. Basically, yeah. For so, me, it would be unnecessarily sticking my foot in my mouth for sure. Yeah. Uh huh. <clears throat> but yeah. But thinking about your new album, you know, it's called The Faith of Least Resistance. And I feel like there's a lot to talk about with that. Um, and, it, you know, I, I honestly, it's one of my favorite albums of the year, I think. I, I definitely oh, enjoy it very much. Thank you. Thank, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, it's a cool, cool album. And uh, like I said, I, le- I love Rush, too. And if people people love Rush. I think they'll probably love your album because it, it very much, I mean, it's almost a tribute to them, I think stylistically in many ways, but. Yeah. Um, yeah it's one thing when you, normally you have a band and there's, there's one guy influenced by Rush and there's somebody else influenced by Rage Against the Machine. And then someone else is influenced by ACDC or whatever, but sadly, well, for better or for worse, I guess I'm, I'm the only guy playing everything and I'm, so everybody in the band is influenced by the same, <laughs> the same people. Yeah. And so it, it, I know it shows, I know that, that my yeah. rush influence is, is pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing. And there are obviously other influences mixed in there as well, but I wanted to ask you first, maybe about the album artwork, which, mm-hmm. um, people who are maybe just listening won't be able to see it, but I've posted it on social media. And if people are listening on YouTube, they should be able to see it. But I was curious if you could describe the album artwork and maybe the concept behind the album and the, and the title, because obviously that's all tied together. Well, um, in the last couple of years, I've seen this movement in Christianity, the, the progressive Christian or the emergent Christianity, uh, well, there's other names for it, but it's new age and mm-hmm. um, Gnosticism. And um, it's a very liberal uh, Christianity. And the Bible is um, coming under scrutiny. The authority of scripture is being kind of ripped out and, these and these teachers are teaching people what their itching ears want to hear. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's pretty crazy how uh, quickly it's infecting the Christian church. And it's hard for me to watch. It makes me, it makes me angry and it makes me, it, it hurts me to see it because I'm, I feel like I, I see so many people who, you know, a lot of people that go to church don't always read their Bible. Yeah. You know, they they go and they, 
just learn from the pastor and they go home and hopefully at some point they'll get more excited about their faith and start reading scripture and getting serious about it. Mm-hmm. But when, so when your teacher is giving you all this heresy, if you're not reading your scripture, you won't know. And mm-hmm. you'll start believe, believing all these weird things, you know, universalism, you know, that there's that um, everybody's going to heaven. There's no hell. There's no Satan. Jesus didn't die for our sins. You know, he's just died to show us his love, that kind of thing. Yeah. And there's, there's this sort of Trojan horse. It's not the only Trojan horse for the progressive um, Christian movement, but um, there's this seemingly har- uh, harmless Enneagram, which is a, it's a symbol. It's looks kind of like the star of David or something, but yeah, it was. Um, yeah. It if I from- could uh, describe it, uh, it's like a nine pointed star, which, which mm-hmm. looks like you said, maybe like a star of David or like a pentagram, but yeah, it's a nine pointed star and it ha- the bottom is open and it, there's mm-hmm. a circle around it yeah. typically. So that's, that's kind of what the Enneagram looks like. Yeah. And it, it comes with, uh, you know, people are using it for these personality tests mm-hmm. and those personality tests come from automatic writing. Mm-hmm. which is, it's like using a Ouija board, but instead of a Ouija board, you use a planchette that goes from letter to letter. Okay. You know, when, when you're in your trance or you're letting the spirits move your hand or whatever, you know, it spells out a word. Mm-hmm. Um, with automatic writing, you're, you have a pencil in your hand and you go into a trance and you let, you know, the spirit world move your hand to write mm-hmm. things down. Now, that's obviously not from from God. This man was not a Bible-believing Christian. Yeah. Was, um, Oscar Ichazo, was he the, the guy? You know, I, I thought he was the guy that actually uh, came up with the personality tests. Okay. I, I could be getting this wrong. I think his name is Naranjo. Naranjo, is that him? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And then I, I feel like uh, I'm a little, I'm a little um, rusty on it right now. It's funny. I usually brush up on this before a podcast in case it comes <laughs> up. Yeah. Um, I think Naranjo was actually the one. I, I do think at one point in a podcast, I said that it was, um, who's the guy you just mentioned? Um, Ichazo. I, I believe, Ichazo. yeah, I believe Naranjo was the first person who kind of came out with the Enneagram, started to develop it, and that Ichazo was one of his disciples. Yeah. And yeah. He, is he the one that took it to California and where it kind of took off from there? I got to brush up on this. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty yeah. interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. I believe so. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to fill in the gaps because I kind of have my own story about yeah. the Enneagram, I guess. So when I saw your album art, I was kind of surprised and like wondering what it was about and I mean the title kind of gave it away a little bit but I was like what's what's going on with this Enneagram thing because I had been introduced to it by actually a a Christian counselor Um, they said oh here's this Enneagram personality test you can take it might help you in your your life and relationships and that kind of stuff and I went to this website and that they sent me and it was pretty clearly a new age website. Mm-hmm. The Enneagram wasn't the only thing on there. There was other meditation stuff and other things that struck me as unusual. Um, but I was like, okay, whatever. I, I guess I'll, I'll take this 
personality test and see what it's about. Um, so I took it and I mean, the symbolism struck me as odd too. So that was another thing, but um, I took the test and I've taken other personality tests before, like, like Myers-Briggs and whatnot, which can be insightful to, to different degrees. But um, I took it and I really wasn't impressed by the results. Like they didn't seem or feel super accurate to me. And they were kind of negative too, which I feel like is yeah. a trait of the Enneagram is that it's actually largely identifying negative characteristics within a person. Um, yeah, I, I looked at that and I thought, hmm, but I'm kind of a thinker and a researcher and stuff. And I like to get to know the backgrounds of things. So I started reading about it and I immediately discovered that it had been developed by all these occult practitioners, I guess you might mm -hmm. call them. And which I was shocked by, you know, and like I said, I kind of had a weird vibe from everything kind of surrounding it. Um, but I had been introduced to it by a Christian counselor. Um, but yeah, and I was also in a relationship at the time and my significant other kind of became obsessed with it, really, mm -hmm. you know. So I started learning all this background about it um, that was disturbing. Um, and then she was kind of obsessed with it. So that actually became a conflict, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, then I started realizing that you know, it wasn't just this one counselor, like it was kind of popping up everywhere, suddenly becoming really popular, largely in the evangelical church, Protestant church in America. Um, and an interesting thing about the Enneagram too, is that it was actually first introduced to Christianity by, um, I believe a couple, well, I think it was maybe introduced by Ichazo to some Catholics who kind of came to his spiritual school looking for spiritual insight and they brought it to the Catholic church. And then I think the person who kind of formally began to spread it to the Catholic church was Richard Rohr. Oh, Richard Rohr. Yeah, yeah. Who, who has written about the Enneagram, uh, probably one of the first popular books about it. Um, and Richard Rohr is a, a Catholic friar although he doesn't really believe the formal teachings of the Catholic church, which is something that people should know. In fact, I think he's maybe been labeled a heretic, you know, within the Catholic church. Yeah. That, that that's news to me. I hope they have, yeah. they, 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 they're pretty slow at coming around and do those, doing those kind of things to me, Richard should obviously be excommunicated from the Catholic church. It's, yep. I mean, that guy is preaching heresy like crazy mm -hmm. and he's leading, I mean, a lot of, you know, even some Christian worship bands that are, that are budding up to him and, and chumming around with him. And, mm -hmm. and um, it's funny how people that get into this stuff, there's just something about like, like I'm guessing per perhaps your significant other was like this, like people that really get into the Enneagram, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, you can show them the truth about it, but they just, they don't want to let go of their Enneagram. Yeah. I mean, they love their Enneagram and they're, they're very much into well, these I, things. Yeah. Well, I think um, one of the things with it is regardless of, of the source, I think people 
people like anything that they feel like gives them a sense of understanding of themselves or meaning. And I think when people take personality tests and that sort of thing, like, like that's the thing, it gives them this, this framework, which may or not be logical or may or may not be biblical, um, depending on where it comes from, but it gives them this framework for understanding themselves and understanding the world. And if it, if it makes sense to them, and especially if it, affirms them or their beliefs in some way then they don't they really don't want to abandon that because this is who I am you know I can't even remember which number I'm supposed to be in the Enneagram but each person is given a number on this nine pointed star and that's like your identity like your core characteristics and then I think sort of the theory is that you, you possess these certain traits or weaknesses. And if you are belonging to a certain number, the goal is to acquire traits of these other numbers, you know, that could be like emotional traits or spiritual traits, depending on how it's yeah. framed. Yeah. And then you are a more mature person emotionally or spiritually by acquiring these traits. So, yeah, I, I can't speak for anyone else. And I'm, I'm certainly not putting this on anybody. I've never taken a personality test and not, not because I don't want to, or I haven't, I just, it just hasn't landed in my lap, you know, but I, I just, I know myself and it mm-hmm. sounds like a lot of fun to me, but I, I think I would probably use the personality test to uh, sort of give me an excuse <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah. to say, well, I, you know, I took a test and I'm just this way, you know, I murder mm-hmm. people and you know, the things that I'm a murderer and that's just what I am, you know? So here yeah. we go, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that happens with them to a degree though, you know, for example, like I said, I've taken a personality test, which it's a big thing in college and stuff. They make you take these tests and like, I'm an INTJ, you know, which there are certain traits like being a critical thinker and stuff like that. Um, and all these ideas that go along with that, but you know, in that I would be like a, an introverted, like intuitive thinking, judging person. So those are like, traits that I possess. Um, and I think one of the weaknesses of, of the whole concept of personality tests um, broadly is that like, so, I mean, we were talking earlier about how maybe you're a little bit more of an introvert, you know, or at least you're not, not into having attention and stuff. And maybe I'm obviously more on that side as well. Um, but then I think sometimes the temptation would be like, if you, if you really buy into that and whatever ideas go along with that as your, your identity, um, I mean, and there, I'm sure there's truth to it, but, but then it's like, there's this excuse like, well, I'm an introvert, so I don't have to try as hard to reach out, you know, right. and like connect with people or, or develop these relationships because I'm just kind of a loner by nature you know right right yeah yeah it's funny because i um you know like i know that i need to be say involved in the community more mm-hmm. you know i need to do more still so we'll say missionary work or mm-hmm. uh just loving my neighbor more mm-hmm. and you know i don't know i don't know if if I'm an introvert or recluse, or if I'm just, I don't know if being shy and being an introvert are kind of the same thing. Cause I, 
I can carry myself well in front of people in a conversation and no one would know that I'm nervous the whole time. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I see what you're saying. Like I can, I can catch myself using that excuse that like, well, I'm just not comfortable around people I don't know. You know, I don't want to go with a bunch of people I don't know down to some country and, you know, and, yeah. but, but when I did that, it was pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, we went down to Nicaragua and um, I'm guilty of not being in the moment. I tend to want to get to the next thing, whatever it is, even if I'm having the time of my life, mm-hmm. I don't tend to enjoy those moments because my mind is always somewhere else. I'm either daydreaming or I'm <laughs> thinking of something else or I'm thinking, so what are we doing after this? Okay. So when we get there and do this, then I need, you know, I'm always somewhere else. But when I was in Nicaragua, every second I was there, like life would hit just it, life in America, had just shut off. Yeah. And my mind was on whatever we were doing and it was great. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I remember wanting to bring that back with me when I came back. Yeah. And I wish I could say it did. I, I still catch myself doing that, but that was a little bit of a tangent, but um, I guess the point is it, these, these things can tell you things about yourselves that, that you can kind of latch onto mm-hmm. and, and discover more, um, you know, information about yourself, so to speak, that mm-hmm. can really trap you into this personality and it can really keep you from, I think, blossoming into who you can be in Christ. Yeah. You know, Jesus can turn you into anything, you know, mm-hmm. whatever types of personalities there are in the world, whatever God wants you to do, he's going to give you whatever personal type, whatever personality you type you need, or I think he's going to help you get over them, like being shy Mm -hmm. or being a recluse or something like that. And the rewards for getting over some of that stuff, at least for me, pretty amazing. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think, and that's important for people to understand. I mean, it's, you know, first I almost want to make a note, like talking about this Enneagram stuff, like for one, it might surprise people whether they're they've kind of taken the test or not. And then two, it probably sounds really strange if they're not familiar with the occult or occult practices mm-hmm. and automatic writing, um, which kind of like you started saying, it's it's actually like inviting a spirit and uh, I guess in a trance or state of meditation to to take over your body and, and mm-hmm. to write things down. Um and and that's that's the way in which this this system this philosophy was actually developed mm-hmm. as as claimed by the people who developed it um so that is what it is you know people yeah. can make their conclusions about that um and but- even if even if somebody doesn't believe it even if they oh i don't believe some spirit took his hand and wrote it i think that was just all in his head mm-hmm. why would you want to take advice from somebody Who's like a crazy person who was was into that, (laughs) who was going to shroom out and uh, let the universe tell him how to just write weird stuff down. And now you're going to, you're going to base how you live your life on the wisdom from this like weirdo who's taking psychedelics and writing Mm -hmm. weird, crazy stuff down, thinking there's spirits in his head, telling him to write this stuff or whatever. I mean, that alone should make you want to step away from the Enneagram, you know? Mm Well, and if you think about it, I mean, this is the point I've brought up. I mean, for Christians, like, I feel like if we're looking to guidance for, for our emotions, like you were saying, for spiritual de- development, we should look to 
our identity in Christ. We should look to the fruits of the spirit, you know, which, which we should be actively working to develop, you know, I think in our daily lives with, with God's help, you know, and, and those are the ways that, that we build character and where we become like more of the person who we're supposed to be. Um, I mean, one of my favorite passages is like Colossians three in scripture. It says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And then it gives this list of basically sins like malice, slander, lust, etc. things that should be avoided. And then it gives these things that you should practice like compassion, kindness, gentleness, um, etc. And, and that's like what our life as a Christian is supposed to be, or at least supposed to become. And we've been, we've been given those tools, I think in scripture and with the Holy spirit. In fact, the Bible says we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Um, so there's that on the other side, there's, you know, psychological research and whatnot that has some value as well. And it's based in science, you know, um, and I think there are things that can be learned from that. But then the question for me becomes, why would you, regardless of your faith standing, why would you look to something for guidance that is neither based in, in say, scripture um, or in scientific research? Because mm-hmm. in my mind, those are the two places I would seek some kind of truth, yeah. you know? So like you said, why would you go to this guy who who said that he had a spirit take over his hand and he's writing down this random stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really make, make a lot of sense to me. So, yeah. So, yeah, I guess to answer the, your question in the beginning, that's why I, when I sit here holding up the uh, album here, <laughs> there you go. I, uh, I wanted to sort of have this, the, 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 the wide road and the narrow road mm-hmm. have, like one of the things I've taught my kids, what my, my daughter, I had her draw a picture one time of, you know, the narrow road and telling her what it may, meant. And she wrote the scripture down mm-hmm. and she thinks about that a lot when she thinks about these kind of things. And so I wanted to draw the highway, the wide road going, you know, to the Enneagram, which is it's inside of a um, it's, it's the same symbol for ohms, which means resistance, like yeah. ohms in like electricity means, you know, it kind of resists the current or whatever. Okay. And so putting that inside of the ohms signal was kind of my way to a make it look cool <laughs> and be just sort of the, the faith of least resistance mm-hmm. um, and the ohms symbol being so huge, just letting everything in and the star thing is in there and the, the road and the flames and everything. And, and then on the back, we have the nice peaceful narrow road, which just looks nice and beautiful and looks like it's going to a, oh. a decent place. And have, have you, um, so here's the yeah I've got I've got my copy right oh, here. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, in fact, um, you sent me this. Uh, oh piece, yeah, this design with with the verse on it. Mm-hmm. You know, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only if you find it. Just Matthew seven fourteen. I've had this on my fridge. I grabbed <laughs> it. You know, for the interview. Nice, nice. Um, but yeah, and then even before that some context for that verse it says enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction 
and many enter through it. And then it says, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. And then for cross-reference, something I thought of is in Luke, it says, actually, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Um, and that's something I've thought a lot about recently, that, that idea of striving, which I, I think is, I think it's a, it's a concept that we've kind of abandoned in modern Christianity or don't like to think about. But like, obviously, you see that in Luke. And I think also Paul talking about striving for different things like, and it's not that like salvation is through works or anything like that. That's not the argument, but, but there's this concept that we really need to try to pursue the things that are right and true, even if they're difficult. Yeah. It, it, it should be difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, um, you know, I have a pastor that always says, you know, give, if, if your giving doesn't hurt a little bit, if it's not stinging you, then you're probably not giving enough, you know, whether it's, this wasn't in the context of tithing. This was in um, whether it's giving your time, you know, whether it's giving your money, whether it's giving up um, your, your will to make someone else's life better, you know, whether it's your wife or your family or your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like striving to be a man of God should, it should hurt a little. It should, it should, it should, you should feel like you're making some kind of a sacrifice. You know, yeah. you're supposed to be a living sacrifice. And that's what I remind myself when I, when I convince myself that I'm miserable, <laughs> when mm -hmm. I'm like, poor me, you know, it's like, well, this is being a living sacrifice. You know, this is, there's, there's pain involved. There's loss, mm -hmm. there's um, whatever, but it's just, you live your life for God. And mm -hmm. from, from time to time, you're going to have to suffer because of it. That's okay. It's not about these 70 or hundred years that, that we get to be on earth. It's about the eternity that's going to happen after that. Yeah. In fact, I was just reading this book earlier um, that a friend who's a missionary gave me, and it's, it's called Finding Calcutta. And it's, it's about Mother Teresa. Um, it's about this woman who went to work with her. So it's sort of autobiographical about her experience and she's a, a protestant you know going to work with mother Teresa, who was a catholic um but then also kind of biographical about mother Teresa. but i actually posted this quote from the book because it was kind of compelling and it said god gives many promises and uh christians are quick to display some of them on coffee cups however one of the promises of god we are not so quick to celebrate is the promise of suffering. And yeah, I, I thought that was a good quote. So something yeah. to think about. Yeah. It's not the kind of thing you want to read first thing in the morning when you get up and have your coffee <laughs> is that you're going to suffer, right? Yeah. Well, it's funny. Like, so I, I read a Spurgeon devotional sometimes and he kind of got, he really got both sides of that. Like so, sometimes it's super challenging and convicting and sometimes it's like, Oh, this makes me feel really good. So there are days when I read that, I'm like, oh man, why does this have to be one of the tough things today? You know, like, <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's the reality of life, I guess. So, yeah. And, um, you know, some of the tough stuff that we go through is 
is God uh, disciplining us and God shaping us. And, you know, God disciplines those he loves and we're supposed to sort of embrace the things that come our way. I mean, God cares about our character and it's, it's better than the alternative. You know, we can either endure God shaping us and endure God disciplining us, or we can endure the punishment that uh, of not knowing God, you know, yeah. you can, because uh, I would much rather be disciplined and taught by a father than just receive wrath. You know? mm-hmm. they, they, they can seem similar sometimes because they're both obviously unpleasant, mm-hmm. but one of them comes from a place of love and hope and future where the other one has no future to speak yeah. of. Yeah. And, you know, you think about it. I was thinking about this this morning. Um, you know, I think, well, thinking about God as a father, and it's like we, we might pray for many things, ask for many things. And I think that often anyone, you know, no matter where they're at, they, they might get upset with God because he doesn't give them what they want um, and be like, oh, he's not a good God or not a good father. But if you think about a father, like a good father, you know, if you bring your kids to the store and obviously you have a number of them, you know, mm-hmm. probably every time they might ask for a candy bar or oh, a toy yeah. or or whatever it is they want. And a good father is not going to give that to them every single time because it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be good for them. You know uh, I mean, it would be bad for them in the long mm-hmm. run. Um, now, sometimes you might, you know, be like, yeah, you know, t- today, you know, you-, you can have this as this gift, mm-hmm. enjoy it, you know, I love you, that kind of a thing. But, but you're not going to give your kids what they want every time because they don't even really know what's good for them. And I think God is, he is like that, you know, that's why he's spoken about as a father. So, yeah, it was up to kids, they had probably rinsed their toothpaste out of their mouth with Kool Aid. <laughs> what no well not that it would go well with the with the toothpaste i guess but you know yeah i, I suppose yeah <laughs> yeah last night it was one of my kids wanted kool-aid before he went to bed and, and i really wanted to give it to him and yeah i just like nah you're going to bed and brush mm-hmm. your teeth and yeah you know, and then he just goes to bed i feel like the mean parent for an hour like um, i won't give my kid kool-aid you know yeah <laughs> such a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't need to take too, too much of your time, but um, I kind of like to let conversations run their course and they have yeah. ideas and stuff too. But um, let's see, I kind of, ha- speaking of paths, I have two paths here, so I'll let you choose okay. one. But um, I mean, an issue, I think maybe I've seen you post about or share about to some degree is kind of the deconstruction reconstruction thing that's become kind of a trend within our culture. Um, like so, reconstructing your faith. Yeah. So, de- so I was thinking about so de- deconstructing your faith and yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was thinking about that, which we could talk about and maybe examples. So we could talk about that or we can just dive maybe into more of some of your lyrics that I was thinking about. So, so, well, so which well, path? The reconstruction thing, are you talking about some of the posts that I posted from Elisa Childers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The reconstruction thing 
is something more of um i can't really relate to it because mm -hmm. i i didn't go through that myself mm -hmm. but i've just seen other people talk about churches that try and get you to reconstruct uh -huh. you know your faith and then what seems to come out the other side is kind of more of this progressive um progressive church kind of a thing mm -hmm. i mean if i guess you could you could define deconstructing your faith in a lot of ways because if you're on a if if your christian faith isn't solid you can deconstruct that and dive into scripture and then reconstruct your faith as a solid christian but um so i i think um i would probably i guess rather talk about the lyrics since i don't i don't know that i'm <laughs> qualified unless unless you would rather talk about i mean i'm okay with whatever but okay i just yeah. don't know that i can relate quite as much yeah to someone else's experiences you know yeah i would i was just curious about that i mean i've just seen some people going through that even some prominent people musicians and stuff and um i mean for one it's been hard to watch and that then two like I feel like there's been so much um, criticism and, and like kind of unkindness sometimes from Christians who I, I think are well-intentioned, but, you know, you have these people who are really genuinely like struggling with their faith and going through this process, whatever, whatever it becomes, you know, hopefully they, they're able to rebuild their faith and, and come out stronger, but that's, that's not always the case either, but, um, you know, obviously you're someone who cares about, about theology and truth and trying to, to teach like the right things. So then I, I think my question is, it's like, so when we're calling out these people who we feel are off somewhere, you know, um, how, how do we do that in like a, a loving manner? Exactly. You know, that's, like, that's the, um, that's the rub. Like, how do you, Especially when you have the other side that's just ready to pounce if you even bring it up. You yeah. Know, if you if you try and bring up that something's a sin or believing a, a false teaching, you know, a progressive Christian teaching or something's false, it, they're just ready to pounce and call you judgmental and, and mm -hmm. say that. Um, and so, you know, I watched Pete go through a lot of this when okay. he recanted his faith. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm assuming you know about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, these days I kind of quit talking about this in interviews because it seemed like the only thing, well, it wasn't the only thing people want to talk about, but it was just, it came up so much that, um, and I didn't really enjoy talking about Pete recanting his faith. Mm -hmm. but, um, and I was always, I always try to be very fair, you know, for Pete's sake. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, something that really meant a lot to me is that Pete in an interview when we did the reunion thing said that he was talking about a lot of the, the hate that he got from it yeah and he said that dalton and i never made him feel like he was being judged mm -hmm. and that meant a lot to me you know because i certainly you know we're allowed to make judgments yeah certainly but i i certainly didn't want to make pete feel hated or like what's that going to do you know yeah and so for me if i'm you know if if someone is is has you know recanted their faith or deconstructed and is kind of especially if they're in a, in a place where they're a teacher or a musician or something 
I mean, I might, I would probably want to bring that up so that people can steer away from their teaching or something. Yeah. But I, but I would never come at them personally and have a remark for them, a negative remark, like you better, you know, get your crap together. You're going to hell or something. Mm -hmm. It's, it's hard, you know, like Richard Rohr, you know, he's, he's out there. He's a teacher. He's, he's just leading people astray. Yeah. I think, I think what he's doing is, is really not a good thing. Mm -hmm. I might, I might be a little more blunt about it when I'm trying to expose people to what's going on than if him and I were having lunch and I was trying to tell him that I think he's got a problem with his theology, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It is. How do you do it with love? How, how, how do you, how do you bring something like that up without making somebody feel judged or feel like Mm -hmm. you think that they're this terrible person going to hell or something? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that it's an even bigger question in like the world of social media and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. I mean, I'll talk about this briefly since we're kind of went down this road intentionally or not. That's okay. That's okay. Whatever you, whatever you need, as much time (laughs) as you want to take, I'm good. Okay. Yeah. But like, I know recently, like, like Kevin Max, you know, from Mm -hmm. DC talk, he kind of stated that he, you know, was going through this process of deconstruction and reconstruction. And I'm a huge Kevin Max fan. You know, he's one of my favorite singers. Um, That guy's got a voice. Yeah. He's got a voice. And, um, you know, I think anyone who's observed him over the years know that he's not like just your typical conservative evangelical, you know, he's always kind of pushing the envelope a little bit, trying to make people think stuff like that, which, you know, even though I've never fully agreed with him on everything, I also kind of admire him for just doing what he kind of thinks is right, whether it's, it's popular or not, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but anyway, um, really almost a year ago, I, I think he did an interview on this podcast, the decent Christian talk podcast. And he just said that he was going through this process of deconstruction and reconstruction, where he was kind of questioning parts of his faith, things that he had learned and picked up and trying to make sense of them or trying to like throw out the bad stuff and and figure out what, what was right, you know? Um, And that's pretty much all that he said um, at that time. And he said, you know, he, he said, basically anyone who's maturing, going through a growth process in their faith will probably experience something like that at some point, you know, they're deaf. And I, I agree with him. And I think the way he framed it was right. You know, there are, there are points at which we might look at something we've been taught and say, maybe that's not right. Maybe it doesn't line up with scripture mm-hmm. or, or what I've experienced to be mm-hmm. true, you know? Um, but, but that, and then a couple other, well, and I think he called himself an ex-evangelical in a post, you know, and he was kind of distancing himself from the, the kind of quote unquote evangelical culture, which I don't even really like that word that much because of the ways it's, it's been used, you know, mm-hmm. in our culture today. Um, but yeah, he, uh, he, he went through that process and I think he said one or two, two other things that were kind of controversial. And then, um, you know, I, I want to qualify this because I've, I've been following Childers a little bit. Um, and for those of you who don't know her, her, she was the singer from Zoe Girl. I think she also had a 
solo career. But she wrote this book called Another Gospel recently, which is talking about her experience kind of being drawn in to the kind of progressive emergent church where she was encouraged to deconstruct her faith and kind of abandon a lot of things. Um, but then she kind of went back through study of the word and, and church history and adopted what she would call like historical Christianity. Um, and the book is really good. And I thought it was really relatable because I had gone through some uh, faith struggles and whatnot. Um, and she has a podcast too, that's just named after her. But I know like she kind of pointed out the Kevin Max thing when it happened and it, it kind of bummed me out mm. uh, because for one, I was just getting into her stuff and I really liked her. And then she's kind of publicly talking negatively about one of my favorite musicians, you know? Um, but I, I didn't think there was enough to go off of because kind of the picture that was painted by her and then also by like conservative media, like the blaze picked it up, you know, mm -hmm. some other John Cooper from skillet picked it up. And kind of the story was like Kevin Max abandons his faith or recants his faith, but, but he never even said that, you know, I mean, he still said, you know, I'm a believer in Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm just trying to figure this stuff out. But, you know, he used the word deconstruct. He used the word ex-evangelical and then kind of all, all hell broke loose for him, you know. And I felt so bad for him, you know. Um, I'm friends with him on Facebook, too. I messaged him at least once about it. Um, but, yeah, it just made me feel bad and, you mm -hmm. know, I, I wished that these people had just kind of reached out to him personally instead of, of posting about him, you know. I wish I could remember more about what the article said. I do remember seeing something from him where he said later that he said he felt like he was very much misunderstood yeah. in what he said. And I was, I remember being really glad. I can't remember what was in that article either, but I remember being really glad to read mm -hmm. that. Um. I, I wish I had it in front of me. Um, I, I felt like I felt like I I read something in that article that um, I, again I don't have it right here. I I don't know how much I want to say on a podcast. I <laughs> I feel like I remember seeing something wishy washy in there that yeah. made me also feel like what's go, what's going on here? Like why is yeah. he saying these things? You know, maybe maybe I need to reread it and mm -hmm. and um, well, and I think he has been. Said. I think he has been going through this process and like whatever it becomes. And I, I don't agree with him on everything. And I, I, I think, you know, I don't want to criticize him harshly either. You know, I think he is probably off on some things and stuff. Um, yeah. I guess just like I was, I was saying, it's, it's like, how do we, if we do think someone is wrong or if it just seems evident that they're struggling, how do we approach them in a, in a loving way instead of just a, just a critical way, especially in like a public manner, you know? Well, I think the key there too is it, it's uh, there's approaching them mm -hmm. and then there's trying to let other people know yeah. to be aware of something, mm -hmm. you know, obviously Rich, uh, 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 Richard Rohr 
is not accessible for everybody to reach out to. And he probably mm-hmm. would, wouldn't want anything to do with me if I tried. <laughs> and, and nor would Kevin Max, you know, I mean, yeah. he's probably isn't just going to take time to talk to everybody that wants to reach out to him and talk mm-hmm. to him about these things. And so, again, I don't remember uh, everything in the article, but I'm I'm guessing Elisa wasn't, uh, Lisa Childers wasn't coming from a point of trying to reach out to him. She was coming from a point of, I just, feel like I should let people know that there's some stuff going on here to yeah to consider with him mm-hmm. um, because he's a big influencer on people and yeah. if if he is going down that road you know people should know mm-hmm. but um that's that's being a public figure I guess you know yeah but uh <laughs> yeah I, I want to go back and I want to go back and reread that you you sparked my interest in that because <laughs> I I feel like Again, I can't remember what was in it, but I came away from it thinking something was a little off mm-hmm. as well. And yeah, and I, and with all of that kind of stuff going on, and just also knowing what I know about a lot of being that I was in the industry and stuff too, mm-hmm. it, it it wouldn't surprise me to see another Christian artist going down that road. Because yeah. I mean, a lot of the people in the Christian music scene. I don't even know if they're Christian, to be honest, mm-hmm. you know, and when I say a lot, I don't mean the majority. Yeah. I just mean, I just mean, I was, I was shocked mm-hmm. at times. Why would these people have this person in their band when they're acting like, and when I say acting like this, I don't mean just being a dummy, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, just doing things that, okay, if you're in a Christian band, you should just not be doing these things. Yeah. And then again, I look back at some of the stupid conversations that I had with Eddie DeGarmo on when I was on forefront, some of the stupid things I said to him, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, I, I I thought I was being smart or, Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, I was at times even cocky, you know, cause I was feeling, I was feeling like forefront had made some promises that they weren't keeping. And I was, I was upset and I, I spent too much time focusing on those things and not being grateful for how much forefront had done for grandma train, you know, and we tended to get ourselves worked up in the band when Mm -hmm. things weren't going our way. I don't know if we were spoiled or if we were just immature or, or what, but there was definitely moments, you know, we, you know, we lived on the road Mm -hmm. and we desperately needed our label to come through for us because, you know, some of us gave up our homes and stuff, you know, we just lived in a van on the road and mm-hmm. we really needed our, we desperately needed our label to be there for us. Yeah. So if there were times where we felt like, like they let us down, we took it pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I think we spent too much time being ungrateful mm-hmm. for the things that they did for us. I mean, that they didn't do for us and being <laughs> grateful, grateful for how many great <clears throat> things they did for us. I mean, they took us from a nobody band to, um, you know, a known Christian band in, in like a year or two. Yeah. And they were, Grandma Train was cutting. Um, we were very cutting edge. Like there was mm-hmm. nobody really doing that. It was very hard for them and expensive for them to help carve a path for Grandma Train to sell records and tour and stuff. You know, it wasn't easy. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, or, it makes me think of, uh, this movie I just watched called Electric Jesus that just came out and I interviewed the director. That was actually the last interview I did, but 
there's this clip in the movie and it's this young Christian band, you know, 80s metal band called 316. Mm-hmm. And uh, something goes wrong when they're going to a concert, I think. And and they kind of miss dinner or whatever. Like they were supposed to get pizza and they don't, you know. So and their their manager's name is Skipwick. <laughs> so who's played by Kevin from The Office, which is pretty great. But oh, nice. um, but anyway, there's the scene where I think the bass player is like, well, Skip, we didn't get our pizza or whatever. And he's like, Skip's like, you know, if I could make a pizza right now out of thin air, I would. But God has not given me that particular gift, you know. <laughs> so it's just this funny moment in the movie. But I don't know. I, I think that's probably how we all are sometimes. It's like, oh, we, di- we didn't get what we thought we were going to get. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, too bad, you know, so. Yeah, and especially when you know we're you know living on the road is rough. You mm-hmm. get tired, you get cranky, and you know to be honest, you get you get used to people doing things for you. Like that was something that it, it took took me a couple of years after the band broke up to realize that I had taken for granted. You get you get so used to everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. You know, can I can I get you something? What do you need? You know, can you do you need something? Can I, can I take you somewhere? Do you need to go to the store? Because you're at the mercy of everybody else. Because mm-hmm. you don't have a car. You know, if you need to go <laughs> get something at the grocery store, so you have runners and and you have you know every night of the week you have a different meal. Not you know when you say you want chicken on this night and stuff, it's not because you're you're big time, but it's because you don't want pizza every night or you don't yeah. want Kentucky fried chicken every single night of the road you know, or spaghetti. Like you need to break it up or you go <laughs> crazy and you eat very unhealthy, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, we got, we had a few promoters from time to time that gave us some grief because, you know, we wanted chicken or something, but we would always try to explain to them why, you know, our, our manager did anyway. Yeah. Quick, quick, <laughs> quick, quick was that his name? Skipwick. Yeah. Skipwick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is our fifth little Caesars pizza this week. No. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. Been yeah. there. <laughs> I said, I wanted to talk about the lyrics a little bit. So I, I do briefly. Um, and maybe, maybe I'll talk about maybe blue light gaze. You know, we were just kind of talking about maybe social media and stuff and how, I don't know. It's this thing that I think is difficult to tame uh, within our, our culture and, and the way we operate. Like, it seems to me like that was kind of what you were writing about with that song, mm-hmm. at least in part. Yeah, it was inspired by Netflix to begin with. Okay. And it's it's basically about all social media. It's about everything that comes out of our screens, our smart screens and our phones and everything. Mm-hmm. But I was watching um, when it when it all hit me it was when I was watching uh, Gotham. OK, I'm, I'm a. I love Batman. Batman was my childhood <laughs> hero, man. Batman is just so cool. And so, so who's your favorite Batman then? Um, who oh, is the, the real Batman? The, the, uh, what the, 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 from the sixties, the, uh, Adam West, Adam West. Yeah. yeah. He was the best. Nice. I just, even as an adult, I love watching those. I love watching those with my son. They're so clever. <laughs> I, I agree. I As a kid, that. I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know they were. It was made for adults. I thought mm-hmm. it was made for kids, and I just took it seriously. I didn't know yeah. there was any humor in it at all. Mm-hmm. And and then I rediscovered it when I when my son Coda was getting in a Batman. I got those, <laughs> and I just relived. I just couldn't believe how clever these were written. Mm-hmm. And oh, so great. But um, yeah, I was watching Gotham. I I didn't think it was going to be that great, but it was amazing. And 
I, Netflix has this formula that I've discovered. You know, they make great stuff. They, they get you roped in and, and then they start sneaking in the sex and the violence mm-hmm. and the propaganda by the third or fourth episode or third or fourth season. You're, you're like totally roped into this thing and you're yeah. committed and you realize, or at least I realized, um, I mean, why do you, why do you have to make the characters and Batman, these classic characters around? Why does everyone have to be gay? Why does everyone have to be sleeping with each other? Why does there have to be extreme violence? Mm-hmm. You know, this is Batman. It's just, it's Batman. You know, we, what, he's a comic book hero from when we were kids, yeah. you know, why does all this stuff have to have all this propaganda in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was tricked, kind of. Mm-hmm. And then I, I was thinking about some other shows that we watched and how they did the same thing. And it made me really mad. And mm-hmm. so uh, I, for me to pick up my pen and start writing lyrics, I have to be emotional. I can't just sit down and go, I think I'm going to write about this. Yeah. I wish I could. I, I've tried. If it was up to me, I would write a worship album. I want to <laughs> write just, I mean, the music would be the same, but lyrically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when I try to write, anything like that um, or just any on a topic if I'm not um, like really emotional about something to where I just I have to pour it out through my pen mm-hmm. I just write mediocre garbage you know yeah so I was really upset and I remember grabbing my pen and I just started writing and you know I go back later and make things rhyme a little more or about you know just <laughs> change change the words and make it sound a little more more clever but Initially, it's just me pouring out my heart on paper. But yeah, it was just seeing our babies affected, seeing even as adults how, you know, we get addicted to the, our blue screens, you know, yeah. and, and all of this stuff's going into our brains and programming us. It really is. It sounds, mm-hmm. it sounds so, um, it sounds like, like it just can't be true. You just, Mm -hmm. you know, we grew up hearing weird things, you know, all these conspiracies and stuff, but it's all true. Like they really are um, just shoving all this propaganda down our kids' throats and down our throats and they're changing our country. And, and it, yeah, it got me really worked up. So (laughs) (laughs) that was blue light gaze. (laughs) That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it is it is really subtle, and and often it's presented in the form of entertainment, um, which you know I I think the assumption there is that it's harmless, um, mm-hmm. and and yeah, we're kind of programmed, and a lot of it is intentional propaganda, probably most of it is at least if it if it feels that way, um, but a lot of it's just about money too. It's like what's mm-hmm. what's going to make money? How are we, you know, um how am I going to get these people to click on this stuff? You know? And, and that's like, sometimes that's all it's about shock value, whatever. Um, yeah. Well, this, this might sound kind of strange and I'm not saying I'm right. Mm-hmm. I, I, it seems to me that something's going on. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, our, constitution and scripture at the same time uh, the authority of both of those are being questioned Mm -hmm. like you know what did the founding fathers really mean when they wrote this what did the founding fathers of 
scripture really mean? What are the founding yeah. fathers of our country? Really, we're gonna we're smarter now, so we're yeah. gonna rewrite what they meant and try and make it more convenient or more whatever. And and it's it's working hand in hand. And it seems like either like either God has lifted his hand to let to allow Satan to kind of maneuver and go nuts. Um, or, um, or, you know, this is, this is where I just, I don't know how much God has set into motion and how much mm -hmm. God is, is interacting or how much of, of this is something is just time. Like is Satan just kind of like, you know, making some sort of a move, you know, which is just something God knew was going to happen and he's allowing it, but then God is going to do what God does. I hope yeah. as Christians that we can, you know, like Jesus said, pray that, you know, the end doesn't come, you know, in winter or, you know, whatever, like, you know, I can't remember exactly, I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but that makes me think that if we're praying, we can, we can delay mm -hmm. if something is terrible is going on in our country. If there is, if God is withholding, um, withdrawing his hand of protection from America. And if, if there's something spiritual going on, I, I'm hoping that we can pray and we can, we can delay anything crazy that might be coming, you know? And yeah. I, I believe if his people just really, if we get on our knees and just beg God to have mercy on America, if there is something going on, I, I don't know, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think it's in Matthew, I might be off, but like, I mean, I think the disciples are asking like what the end will be like. And, and mm -hmm. Jesus says all of these things, there'll be wars, rumors of wars, etc. Um, and there's a verse and like I said, maybe it's in Matthew, maybe it's in another gospel, but I think he says it will be as in the, the days of Noah, when everyone did what is right in their own eyes, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's, that's the place that we're in as a, a culture now. Um, I think, I mean, for one, we've moved and in kind of into this kind of postmodern era where I think truth is is questioned on on all fronts and and there isn't like this moral framework or religious framework or, or anything that's really tying like us together as a nation or or otherwise so we end up with this weird i don't know what to call it i mean it's kind of a disaster <laughs> you know yeah it's i mean we call it a, a melting pot of different cultures and this and that but at some point with religion particularly mm -hmm. and morals a, a melting pot sometimes that just doesn't work you know yeah i mean you have you have these competing values or even opposite values that just can't can't jive together you know the best you can hope for is that people will give each other some space you know mm -hmm. like yeah i mean at least if you kind of want a peaceful scenario um but yeah I mean, it's, and, you know, you know, to bring it back to another song, you know, you wrote like the camera lie, which is there anything else you wanted to say before I, I jump to this next oh, thing? No, okay. Um, you know, which I think is about the media and sort of quote, quote unquote, fake news, um, yeah. which I've made the observation like, uh, seems like conservatives call things they don't like fake news and liberals call things they don't like misinformation so so we we've both both sides have their own terms for 
for anything that they kind of want to dismiss, but well, unless unless it's just not true. I mean, yeah. fake news is fake news. I mean, I know yeah. it's turned into a catchphrase, and sure, people use it for things they don't like. But my observation is that there 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 have been all these lies. I mean, yeah. things that I've looked at and found out. Like I was as as much as I knew the media lied already. Mm-hmm. I'm still to this day constantly shocked. Yeah, at how much the media just blatantly lies, even mm-hmm. even after they're caught. Yeah. They'll still lie about mm-hmm. the same thing. And there's just so, so clearly lying is part of the way that, that they, they win. That's mm-hmm. part of the way that they make things happen. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, sure. Politicians and people lie, you know, everybody, you know, is, is messed up in one way or another, but mm-hmm. I, I really do with all my heart believe that, way more than half of the line goes on on the left side of the aisle (laughs) yeah i i wouldn't go that far i don't know it's it's hard i i think i think people at least often they have good intentions like you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. like i don't i don't necessarily think the media has good intentions i i think a lot, a lot of that's just money. And I think it is propaganda to a large degree, but, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people, at least average people, even politicians, like politicians lie a lot, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to give them too much of a, of a pass, but I think a lot of times they think they're doing the right thing. I don't know. So does, does that make sense? Like, yeah, I, I thought that more so, I don't know how politically you want to get. I, I thought that more so until the Rittenhouse trial. Oh, yeah. That I, I I used to be very much like, well, they just see things differently. Mm-hmm. But that guy was so clearly fighting for his life. And yeah. I just I I and, and even after the trial, seeing the media still lie saying that he illegally carried a gun across the state line and all that kind of stuff, even after we we no, that's not what happened is saying, I mean, just painting him out to be a mass shooter. He went mm-hmm. there to, to shoot people, you know, mm-hmm. because he had a gun. So that means everybody, everybody that was there that had a gun went there to shoot people. Yeah. But only oh, what only Kyle. I mean, it's just, there's, there's no way in, in any universe that that kid went there with the intention of hurting anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's, you know, that, I posted about that and I kind of stirred up some people recently and I wasn't even really taking a side on it. I I think I was just disturbed by the way it unfolded the whole thing, you know? Um, But yeah, I I remember just observing the whole situation and just being so troubled by it, you know, Um, and, and kind of, and seeing all this celebration after the trial was over, which which I think was just so over politicized, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and and both sides kind of had an agenda um, to an extent. Um, and like, obviously, there are well-intentioned people too. I, I think people just genuinely wanted justice. And like at, at the end, I, I kind of I think the the justice system did its job, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they made a just decision. It, it seems seems clear to me that he was defending himself and he wasn't out there trying to kill people but then it's like if i if i take this 
this kind of big picture view of the scenario. It's like, we've got this, these violent riots going on in this city that, that shouldn't be going on. You know, there are people there armed, there's stuff that's being destroyed. And you've got, got this kid who I think had good intentions and wanted to be there to help, but you know, he's maybe a little bit young and rash and he shows up with, with a gun to this conflict situation and, and maybe he's not fully prepared for it. You know, it's not like he's an officer or a veteran or someone you like that, you know, and, and then people try to attack him and, yeah. and he has to defend himself. And the whole thing to me was just tragic and heartbreaking. And, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm glad that I think the justice system did their job, but then I was like, at the end, I don't feel like celebrating, you know, it's just sad to me. And, you know, I, I wish kind of for Kyle's sake that he had just stayed home, you know, like just, you yeah. know, and, and maybe, maybe some other tragedy would have unfolded with someone else then, but, but it just seemed so tragic to me. The whole I'll, I'll bet he wishes he had stayed home too. You know, I mean, yeah. this is, you know, I guess, um, I mean, I didn't, I, I don't know. I, I didn't watch any of the celebrations per se or anything, but I, I think a lot of that comes from the relief that, yeah. I mean, if he had been put in prison, I would have lost all hope in our judicial system. I would have, I mean, I have a gun and mm -hmm. I will defend my family if someone breaks into my house and tries to hurt my family. But I'm, I'm already thinking, how do I know I'm not going to go to prison for the rest of my life? Yeah. If someone comes in and tries to rape my wife and I shoot somebody, mm -hmm. am I going to go to prison for the rest of my life? You know, mm -hmm. that's. Um, well, you live yeah. in Texas, so maybe you're safer, yeah. but <laughs> I think I'm. Okay. Although you live in Austin, so. <laughs> yeah, I am in a, and, and, and here's the thing that's crazy. It all just yep. depends on, you know, to some extent who, who the judge is or, yeah. you know, but um, so I think we, I think there was like this sigh of relief that, okay, you know, we haven't lost our country yet Yeah. because this case would have, yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it sadly, like you said, it became political, which yeah. is, it's, it's sad that it has to be political. It shouldn't be political. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be any pressure on the jury to, 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 um, to make some carry, sort of carry show, out the, yes, you know, carry out the whim of some political ideology or something, you know, yeah. it should just be left alone. You mm -hmm. know, I don't even think they should be broadcasting it live. I think it should just be behind closed doors. Yeah. It should be left alone, do it. And then we hear the verdict or whatever. I know yeah. why they, they did it live. And I guess these days it's a different world, you know? Yeah. I mean, but that, to that point, especially with like a minor on trial, you know, that's a whole other dynamic too. Mm -hmm. it, and that adds, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's frustrating the whole, the whole thing, but. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when every part of our life has suddenly become political, it's hard to, it's kind of, it's kind of part of the new era. Like, well, I guess everything's political now, you know, mm -hmm. and it's uh, for, for me, there's no more. I mean, I will always try to see the other side. Yeah. But that trial really did change something in me as far as thinking that we see things differently and everybody means well. I think 
I think some people are just evil and they want the world yeah. to burn, you know? It's true. That's a Batman line too. Yeah. <laughs> Different Batman, but you know, mm-hmm. Alfred, I think says that. Uh, and, and, and sadly, I think those people are becoming more and more. You yeah. Know? And, and it's, I think it's become contagious even. Yeah. Well, I, so one of my favorite songs, um, maybe, yeah, I think God of Creation. Mm. I don't know. This, wrote, this is where the podcast will skip right to this, right? We'll be talking skip about right something to else, this, yeah. And then suddenly we're here. Skip the politics, <laughs> get to the God of Creation. But yeah. Um, yeah, because let's see. Well, it talks about, you know, all these negative things, talks about pain, hate, blame, rage, and um you know (laughs) a sign and a banner to shatter lines we've drawn a few angry fists on a list and freedom is gone and all this stuff but then it's like i i believe in the god of creation i believe in the god above all the nations you know the blood at calvary paid a price for me i will speak the truth and the light of salvation so and I think for that reason, that song was maybe my favorite on the album. I mean, I love it musically as well, but, you know, it was drawing attention to all of these, uh, I don't know, all the suffering, all of these things that, that cause suffering or that are evil, you know, uh, things that we see in the world. But then it's like, but I believe in God who's, who's above all of this, you know, mm-hmm. and who died for me, you know. And, and then there's this hope, you know, mm-hmm. which I, I think is the question that everybody is hopefully looking for in the midst of everything we see in unfolding, whether it's, it's with, with politics or, or the media or all the things that distract us. It's like, where, where do I find something of substance or, or where there's hope, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, um, I, I think when I wrote that, I was watching a demonstration um I, I don't i don't remember what demonstration it was but i just remember all the screaming and the yelling and the i remember that it was just like there was there was so much it was like this radiating it, it just, just embrace rage, embracing anger. rage and yeah. embracing sin and making sin look like this is all good and we're we're yeah. fighting for this and it was just so intense and just these angry people screaming and yelling uh it, it may have been a uh, a pro-choice rally mm-hmm. in fact i'm pretty sure that's what it was now that i remember and it's just made me think of just a lot of the other stuff that had been going on and 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 just in the midst of all this negativity and all of this pressure to stay silent, mm-hmm. you know, the pressure is enormous to just not get involved. Don't yeah. speak your mind, just stay out of it and let the world do what it's going to do. To me, mm-hmm. I think that's when you let others make decisions for you, you know, for your future, for your kid's future. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, when it comes down to it at, at the end of everything, there's God. Yeah. And you know, people say, well, Jesus is a crutch, you know, and I don't, I don't, I used to, I used to look at that and think that that would be a bad thing. And I, uh-huh. I realized like, yeah, a crutch holds you up Yeah, when, when you're wounded or hurt, you know, yeah. 
Well, I heard that's where the band Thousand Foot Crutch got their name from. Oh, really? Which, which made me like like their name and stuff a lot better. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. But <laughs> I didn't know that. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I just there's that piece at the end of the day. You know, you mm-hmm. can get caught up in this stuff, and you can get upset, and you can let it hurt you, and you can it can it can bring you down. And it, but just if you take a moment and reflect on what's good and what's true and what's beautiful. And you, and you can remind yourself that you are allowed to proclaim these things, yeah. these good things and, you know, let the cards fall where they may. But if I'm like, that's the hill to die on yeah. is proclaiming those things, you know, proclaiming that there's a, a true loving God that created us, loves us, died for us and is worth looking into you know, if you don't know who Jesus is, it's worth just looking into the truth, just seeing if this is true, seeing if this is real. Mm-hmm. You know, there's 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 nothing to hide. You can look at the history. You can examine. You can dedicate your life to examining Christian history. And I don't. I think you might get might find a lot of confusing things. But <laughs> yeah, I've been I trying, and there's side, a lot okay? to study. <laughs> there is. <laughs> yeah, well, I've only scratched the surface. Surface, but I'm satisfied. You know, I've. I wanted to, to, to do research and I wanted to get all the way back as far as I could to the apostles. And I wanted mm-hmm. to know where these teachings came from. And I, I really liked what I found, you know, I, well, there's a lot I didn't like too. A lot of really <laughs> terrible things that happened. Yeah. But yeah, that's the hill to die on is that chorus, you know, the, yeah. the hill to die on is, it's not, I'm going to go fight for abortion. You know, I'm going to go fight so we can kill unborn children. That's not a hill yeah. to, to die on. It is for some people, but not for me. The mm-hmm. hill that I want to die on is just standing up for Jesus, standing up for the truth. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, like, I mean, a couple things. It's like, I think a, a lot of the political views, regardless of of what they are, you know, like, I I think, well, we kind of have made everything a hill to die on in our culture. You know, it's all about I'm right, the other person's wrong, and I've got to fight them you know, and, and be angry about it and, and vengeful, um, and burn stuff down or, or whatever. And I mean, I can't remember the exact verse, but it's like, you know, the wrath of man doesn't accomplish the will of God, something like Mm -hmm. that. So, you know, how, and there are times to be angry and upset about, about the injustice and things going on in the world, but I think how we address things and how we deal with it really matters a lot too and how we can somehow bring love and like shine the light of Christ into Mm -hmm. that situation and then secondly kind of like you were talking about I think one of the biggest lies you know that our culture sells us on a lot of different fronts is is this illusion of of self-sufficiency you know um that I'm I'm good enough you know um Mm -hmm. I was actually, uh, I was flying back from Texas, um, probably, I guess it was this last February. Um, I'd, I'd been down there. I'd been in Mexico work, working at this children's home for mission trip. And I sat next to this girl on the plane and she's about my age. And somehow we got into this really deep conversation about life. And, um, and we were talking about suffering and stuff and, and like, you know, maybe like how growth often comes through that. Mm. Um, 
and and she was very much into into spirituality you know and into new age stuff and she was even listening to a podcast about it and and she started explaining to me like what she believed and and she was which wasn't super specific honestly it wasn't very well defined but but one of the main things she said was she felt like it was so important for each person to realize that they're good enough you know like I'm good enough I'm enough mm. and I basically said I was like oh I totally don't believe that <laughs> you know <laughs> you know I didn't I don't think I said it that way but uh I was like no I mean I was like yeah no I'm a Christian you know I believe in Jesus and, and the gospel and I said like probably the core of the gospel is that I'm, I'm not good enough, you know? Um, but like Christ, you know, took that out upon himself, you know, he's God, he is the perfect one. So I don't have to be, you know, like, like there are things to strive for, but like, ultimately when it comes down to it, it's, it's about the fact that he's good enough and I'm not, so I don't, I don't have to worry about it, you know? And, and that's, that's part of, part of the hope too, you know? And that's yeah. like, I think something people need to hear because if you're if you're trying to find this goodness or this righteousness in yourself or just fight for this cause like I don't think you'll ever I know you'll never be satisfied because yeah yeah I still need to hear that like I'm um one of my struggles has always been uh you know while I'm a perfectionist mm -hmm. and to the extreme and I I'm really, really down on myself if I fall short in whether it's being a musician or being a dad or being a Christian or a husband and, and I can dwell, you know, and I can just be, I can at times really just only see my failures mm -hmm. and I have to, it, for me, it takes like, that's what I do naturally. And it takes a conscious effort for me to to move beyond that and, and, and um, remind myself, I don't have to make myself into, I don't have to be perfect for God to love me. I don't mm -hmm. have to be perfect for my kids to love me. I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to be a perfect musician. I don't have <laughs> to be whatever, you know, mm -hmm. and God does love me, even though I feel like I feel like he could love and forgive Hitler easier than he could love and forgive me. <laughs> like, I know God loves me in my mind, but just trying to get that down into my heart sometimes can be mm -hmm. difficult. Yeah. And yeah, what a great message, you know, that it's okay to just allow yourself to not be good enough. <laughs> and of course we always have to preface that with, it's not an excuse to go out and sin and be stupid, Yeah, but it's okay in in the end it, it, it's okay that you have sinned and that you're stupid <laughs> yeah well it's like i mean in john i don't remember the passage but basically says don't sin but if you do sin there's grace you know and and it's this great thing you know i mean you look at john and man he has some really challenging stuff he's oh yeah you know you know because he he's saying all this stuff like well if you sin if you do this and you're of the devil, basically, um, stuff like that. And you're like, oh, man. But then he gets to the end of that. And, and he says that he's like, so don't sin. But if you do sin, you know, there's grace. And that's not exactly how he says it. But 
Yeah. You know, um, so it's this this little bit of hope kind of at the end of the discourse, like, like, guys, I know I know you're going to mess up. It's OK, you know, just keep trying, you know, to do the right thing and keep trusting God, you know. Hey, I, I I'm looking at my thing here. I have to pick up my daughter at yeah. 30. So I got to leave here in about 10 minutes. So, yeah, well, my wife you know. is texting me asking how much longer I'm going to be. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that's probably a good note to end the conversation on anyway. Um, this is this is good. I, I wish we could go on. We're turning us into a Joe Rogan. Uh, it is. Three it's, hours. <laughs> it's, it's pretty long. You know, I don't know. We can chat sometime, too, just for the heck yeah. of it. But yeah. in fact, I will be back in Texas again in February and I might even be in Austin. So if you. Oh, man, if you are, let's go have lunch or. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really enjoy talking with you. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. But um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any any other closing thoughts or things you'd like to add? Um, if not, that's okay. I just always like to um, add. But no, okay. No, I just I, I I appreciate these conversations. You know, I like having intelligent conversation with somebody. I mean, you're obviously learned and you're smart. You know, I mean, you well, you have you. a lot to offer. You know, and I'm I'm glad that you're taking the time to do these podcasts. Well, thank you. I appreciate mm-hmm. that very much. Yeah. And yeah, it's been great. So thanks again for coming on. And sure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to episode number six of the Devani Music Podcast. And thank you very much to Paul Rohrabach for taking the time to interview. Make sure to check out his new album with PJ Bostic titled Faith of Least Resistance, which you can find exclusively at pjbostic.com. That's P-J-B-O-S-T-I-C dot com. Be, be sure to look up his music with Grandma Train as well, but you should be able to find anywhere that music is streamed or sold. You can also find both PJ Bostic and Grandma Train on Facebook, and you can also find Paul Rohrabach on Instagram. The intro track to this podcast was created by Barry Blair, the original guitarist of Audio Adrenaline. Barry has some great music up on Spotify, which is definitely worth checking out. This podcast was edited by the indomitable Chris Cooner. If you liked what you heard today, please feel free to follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, not to mention your favorite podcast app. Speaking of which, you can now find the Devani Music Podcast on Podchaser. Feel free to stop by, follow us, and leave a review. This podcast is also available on Anchor, Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Podbeaten, Podcast Guru, and Radio Public. You may also subscribe via RSS at our anchor site, anchor.fm slash devmusicpod. No matter what you thought of today's podcast, we would greatly appreciate your feedback. If you have any thoughts, comments, or questions about today's episode or a previous episode, then please send us a message via social media or email. We are also open to suggestions about which artists to cover. You can email us at devaneyproductions at gmail.com. That's D-E-V-A-N-E-Y productions at gmail.com. I realize that in today's episode, we talked about a few controversial topics. If you'd like more information or resources about the Enneagram or anything else mentioned in today's episode, or even if you would simply like to know my sources, then feel free to contact me about that as well. I may include a couple links in the show notes. Also, again, feel free to share your feedback, whether you agree or disagree or 
you're uncertain about what was said today, feel free to share your thoughts. I'd love to hear them. Thank you again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode with Luke Easter.